Church, it is good, good, good to see you always. Hey, look, I don't know where you're at right now, but one thing I know is every time we gather together, we're coming among one, amongst one another with our own things, our own struggles, our own thoughts, our own intentions. And, and I just know that there are people who are discouraged. People are hearing voices in their heads saying, yeah, yeah, you have no right to participate in any of this. Accusations from the enemy somehow trying to exclude you from the family, exclude you from the word of God, overbearing maybe your own thoughts on your shoulders about your fa- failures as a, as, a, as a citizen, as a parent, as a spouse, as a friend, as a coworker, as you're constantly reflecting on your shortcomings and even sins. Maybe the enemy winning in your life saying, hey, hey, you have no right. Don't even stand up and sing. You just remain where you are and you reflect with guilt on where you're missing it. Can I tell you something? The gospel speaks over every single person on planet earth. That whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And those who are in Christ Jesus, listen to this, a truth that comes from God, not a maybe, not a potential, a truth those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That stands true over the realities of us living day in and day out in our flesh, still experiencing the weakness and the shortcomings and the sins. And I hear the scripture saying things like this, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And I'm telling you, there's something powerful about you reflecting on the grace of God that will bring in the power and the strength that you need to be able to renounce the ungodliness in your life and give you that self-controlled, upright, godly life that Titus tells us that we can have in this present age. And it comes through the grace of God that first brought salvation and then brings you your sanctification, your growth. So you come here, you sit amongst brothers and sisters. If there are things you need to repent of, give to the Lord, you confess it, but you know that you are welcome here and the gospel speaks over every person that would place their faith in Jesus. So as we dive into James and it does confront us, we'll always remember, hey, no, 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 the grace of God is alongside me and confronting me, trying to grow me into the image of Jesus. So now this, I know that we just prayed. But I want to pray and ask God to be over this word as I open it up. Ask him to be with me and open our hearts and minds for it. Let's pray. Father, you know exactly what each and every one of us needs. And there's something powerful about your word when it's opened and our ears hear it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so I pray that you'd help me to honor your word. That, that my words would, would be your words. They would not be my words. That, God, you'd be patient with me as I am too a man in weak flesh who still struggles with the sins of the world in need of your grace and your mercy. We all are in this same boat. And here is another day that you have given us of life that you've planned for us to be here. So do in our hearts and minds what you see fit. And God, I pray that you'd break hearts of stone. God, I pray that you would encourage the faint-hearted. You'd lift up the weak. You'd admonish those maybe who are idle, apathetic. You bring us all to a place where we're moving towards you on the narrow road in your power and in your strength. And I pray it all in the great name of Jesus. Amen. We're in the book of James, and we're going through this series called Real Faith, and we're actually getting close to finishing it. I want to take you real quick. I'll just give you a quick overview 
of what James has been doing because we we kind of in chapter four, I would say it's easy to get lost in the weeds in the middle towards the end of the book of James because man, James starts laying it on. So let me, let me, let me make us back up. Let's take a look at the summit and remember what it is that we're talking about here. James writes to the church that has been dispersed. This are the churches that have been scattered as the result of persecution. So he writes a letter to them. He's hearing about the things that are going on in each one of these churches. And so he writes a letter that would be general, but apply to all of them. The very beginning, he reminds them of the hardship that comes upon them, that it is God's goodness and his providence bringing it to you. It's testing your faith. Count it all joy. He's doing something. He moves on quickly to talk about, immediately starts talking about humility and how whatever status of life that you're in, real faith is going to respond properly to the status of either being poor or being rich. Real faith is then going to respond to temptations by not so easily giving in to them, but seeing temptations for what they are, our own desires, drawing us away to a place that will destroy us and real faith sees that. He goes on to talk about really a crux of the matter that we see reverberating through the whole book, how real faith will hear the word of God, but not be deceived by the hearing. It'll hear it. It'll sink deep and it'll go and do the word of God. And that's when he gives us this, this illustration of looking in the mirror. God's word is holding a mirror to our face. What does a mirror do? It shows us who we really are, which is part of the problem. We don't know who we really are. We have grandiose, bigger thoughts and ideas about ourselves. We elevate and we lift ourselves up. We have a place of pride and we think too much of ourselves and we don't even realize it. That's why we need God's word. And it comes and it shows us who we all are. And that's why a lot of people don't like hearing it because it's being exposed. And then Jesus says, those men love darkness rather than light. So when the mirror shines and shows us clearly, we either run from it or we break the mirror or like those who have real faith, they see it and their hearts are broken and they bring that reality to God in humility and repentance. This theme starts to be carried through the rest of the book. As he's like, okay, now that I've told you these things, I've encouraged you, I've challenged you, I've told you about hearing and doing and not just being a doer, let's talk about some things. So he goes right into talking about the partiality that had been in the church. Real faith will see everyone equal regardless of whether or not they have status or rich or poor. And real faith will not manifest actions and attitudes that will, that will elevate some above others. It will treat everyone like God treats everyone with no favoritism. He goes on at the end of chapter two to talk about dead faith. Real faith is alive. It's not dead. It won't just say things. It'll actually show through its actions what it believes. And then we get to chapter three where he talks about the tongue, right? How the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Real faith is going to be repenting and doing something and taming the tongue, maturing because a perfect person, a mature person, which our trials are trying to get us to if we let them tames the tongue, and then we get to chapter four, which is where we've been. And chapter four has some interesting things. He's really pounding pride. In chapter four, he talks about our wants and desires are what's causing the fights among us. And then he says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so the last three weeks, including this one, has been a really big theme about dealing with the pride. So here's where we are. Pride in chapter four manifests itself through our desires. 
and we start to fight and quarrel because we have these passions at war within us. Last week, we saw how pride manifests itself and slander and how we talk about people. We elevate ourselves and all of this is evil. And today we're going to talk about how pride manifests itself and the own plans that we make. But I don't want to just tell you my words. I want to actually help us understand what James is doing through some memes. You know what memes are, right? If you've seen uh, one of my favorite memes, it's this idea of you're not who you think you are. Expectation versus reality. How you think you look versus how you really look. And let me, let me give you some examples. Here's the first one. You guys know who this is, right? Ooh, right. What you think you look like when maybe you try to dress up like Wolverine. But here's what you actually look like. Boom. All right, let's, let's, you guys kind of get it. We're warming up. Let's go to another one. How about this one? When you're getting a photo taking, what you think you look like versus what you Actually, that one gets me. I can't look at that, that, that face. <laughs> Thanks, oh, poor Anne Hathaway. All right, okay, one more. What, here, how about this one? What you think you look like while running versus what you actually look like <laughs> while running. Okay, you guys are good. You've got this. Now, I, I made some to help us understand the last few sermons of James. How about this next one? James chapter four, verses one through 10, talk about fighting and quarreling. One of the reasons we fight and quarrel is because we excuse, we're deceived. We think that our desires are okay. So when we fight and quarrel at our best, we think we look like this, fighting for our desires and our wants because they're so noble, but here's what we actually look like. This is what, and this is what the Bible is showing. This is, no, this is what you actually look like when you fight. Hey, how about slander? At slander's best, this is what, it might tend to look like for us. We're somehow solving problems. We're somehow building something. We're somehow talking about someone because it's necessary in order to help at its best. But we found out last week, slander is more than likely maliciously intended to be evil. But here's what we actually look like when we slander, right? (laughs) House is burning down and we're just happy to see it happen, right? Right? How about this next one? This is what we're going to learn today. What it looks like, what we think it looks like when we make plans. Studious, planning out our calendar, our year, going down, jotting everything down, right? Because what are we doing? We're making sure we're getting ahead of everything. We're going to get ourselves to a place where we can stand as they have conquered all of these things and problems that have come to me. Here I am standing on top. What we think we look like versus what we actually look like <laughs> and what we're actually doing. This is what we are going to see today. So you get the picture of what James, the mirror of God is trying to help us do, help us see what we actually look like because we're so deceived. We need the mirror. So today we're going to look at what planning without God, or as I call it, prideful planning reveals about a person. And we must look now. It's going, to be cha- it's going to be verses 13 through 17. And I want to say this right off the bat. This includes everyone. This does not just pertain to planners, people who are good at planning and people who like to plan. This pertains to everyone because everyone plans. Everyone makes decisions for the future. What they're going to do later today versus later tomorrow. Everyone is saying, hey, well, here's what I'm going to do. Boom. Or you make some type of plan. It doesn't even have to be written down. It doesn't have to be organized. 
Every single one of us plans. But there's a type of planning that will manifest a pride deep inside that's showing still that ugly, evil inner self that wants to elevate our wants and our desires above everyone and especially above God. And if we're not careful, we can go about the rest of our life planning like this and the whole time we're just cutting down the very limb that we're sitting on thinking we're accomplishing something. So let me read the passage and then we're going to talk about these things specifically. James chapter four, starting in verse 13, he says this, come now you who say quotations today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So let's take a look at this. What is this passage revealing about prideful planning. We're going to see several things here. The first thing is this, starting right off the bat in verse 13. Prideful planning reveals a person who thinks they are in control of their future. Now, if I were to ask any of us that question, do you, can you control the future? We all know the right answer, but we live constantly in our efforts and our anxiety proves it that we think there is truly something we can do to determine what the future holds in our life and what it will look like. He says this, come now. Interesting phrase when I studied that. James is like setting up for war. It's a war that says like, okay, now it's your turn. And it's a very confrontational phrase. It's like, I'm about to attack. Now he calls them brothers constantly. So there's constantly a reaffirmation of, I love you. This is good for you, but we must address this. So come now. And he's identifying the people he wants to talk to. He says, you who say, and this would be the type of person he wants to talk to. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He is talking to a specific type of person. Back in that day, there would have been traveling merchants. This would have been a type of person within the church. They would have fit in a categorization. And he's saying, I specifically want to talk to you. James has this theme throughout the whole book where he is addressing those who have money to those who are rich and to those who make money and live their life chasing after money. He is specifically talking to them, but he's saying anyone who would say something like this or who would make plans for today or tomorrow. So that's why we can't read this about, oh, I'm not a traveling merchant, so he's not talking. No, we all raise our hands and say, yep, he's talking about me because we all make plans. But if we go back into this day, we see what type of culture and time they lived in. When James would have wrote this, it's like everyone in the congregation would have been like, oh, he's talking about Jerry, John, George. Maybe at first, but as they listened to the word of God, their minds would have been like, oh, he's talking about me as well. It says here, today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade and make a profit. When we make plans, 
without God in them. They're our plans, what we want to do. Here's what's prideful about it. And prideful planning is the person who thinks they're in control of their future. Look at how much is here. First, when. I'm in control of when, today or tomorrow. It's a proclamation coming from my own heart. I'm in control of where we will go into such and such a city. I'm in control of how long we will spend time there. Spend a year there, and I'm in control of how successful I will be. Make a profit. Now, here's what James isn't saying. He isn't saying planning's wrong. He isn't saying making a profit is wrong. What are we addressing here? We're addressing the plans that we make now, the decisions we make now out of the pridefulness of our heart that thinks that we can control the future and we fail to neglect God's plan over ours. Prideful planning reveals a person who thinks they are in control of their future. But look what he says here. Verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Dismantles it in a single word. And no doubt, James is thinking about the Proverbs that talks about, I think it's Proverbs 27. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what tomorrow will bring. I mean, think about life, guys, the uncertainty. Think about how often the, the circumstances of life hit us, things that we have no control over, and they, they inevitably affect our plans. They keep our plans from happening, and this is happening all the time, from the weather to the politics to, to some other person that we can't control that has evil intent that interrupts our day to our vehicles breaking down to, to sickness striking us or a loved one. Constantly things that are always ready and are happening and will happen, but we don't know. We are not God. We don't know what hold is held in the future and we cannot control the future. But when we plan pridefully, like, okay, I'm going to sit here and this is what I'm going to do. We don't include God with it. We're revealing a pride that's deep down that says, I can control my future. It fails to include God. I want to read a parable from Jesus in Luke chapter 12. Jesus teaches this. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Someone from the crowd, when Jesus is teaching, interrupts him and is demanding that the teacher, Jesus, command his brother to share an inheritance with him. But he said, Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter, arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care. Imagine Jesus here before saying this to us as we're thinking about planning, as we're thinking about going about our life, building riches for ourselves. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, which is wanting more and more. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. But he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, 
and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In the story, Jesus is talking about a man who makes great plans, great plans about his possessions and even his riches. And all of his plans consisted within this temporary timeline. It's almost as if the rich man knew on this day, when I am this old, I will pass away into the middle of the night and it will be go gently and I will be able to live my life however I want to up to that point. And now I have made myself riches and now I can sit back and relax. And in the very night that he says that God says, fool, your soul is required of you tonight. Did you plan for that? You are dying tonight. So we come back to James. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, when we're going to go into such and such a place, where we're going we're to spend a year there, how long, and we're going to make a profit, and how successful I'm going to be. All of that I'm planning right now, right now. Let's do it, and I'm excited about it. And then James says, yeah, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You see where James is still trying to get at the heart of pride that's in man? Right? The mirror is re- like, we're like, man, I do this all the time. I plan all the time. I never think this is wrong or evil. I'm just, I feel like I'm being studious, right? But this is why we need the mirror to show us the manifestations of pride in us. And pride is the one thing that's going to keep God away from us. Remember, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. James is trying to do as much work as he can to to cause us to have a broken and contrite, gentle heart that bows our head before him and says, God, forgive me. And I think we need to do a little bit of that in our planning as well. Again, this includes all of us. What's the next thing prideful planning reveals about a person? A person who thinks they have all the time in the world. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. And he says this, what is your life? It's a question. What is your life? If you were to describe life, how would you describe it? What would be accurate? What would be the best way to describe it? Would we describe it with colorful words that, that, that puff us up and make us sound better? Or would we, would we accurately, objectively describe life with, with a picture that would help us understand truly what life is? And he says, what is life? What is your life? And then he, he gives us the poetry. You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I mean, imagine if I had the mirror up here and I breathed on it. You'd see it come and it go. It's this idea of a, a, a mist. It's a vapor. It's there and it so quickly fades. This is what life is. Life is here and then it's gone. I mean, think about this. We're all born within the last, within the last, I would assume, 90 years, if I include all of us here. But it's like we wake up, we have no consciousness. We wake up and we get to the age where we can start thinking about our life and we realize there's thousands of years before us that are just there, history books filled. None of us were there to experience, but it's just there and it's gone. And guess what? We're part of that history and it's going. The time is clicking down hundreds of years later. Maybe if the Lord doesn't come back, someone's gonna be thinking about our time when we no longer exist, we're part of history. Life is a mist that appears and then it's gone. Is this meant to depress us? Is this meant to make us think that somehow life is worthless? Because let me get this. In this moment right now, if you're thinking, as a result of hearing these things, you're like, what's the point point of my life then? 
You are not being influenced by the spirit. The spirit is not wanting you to get to a place where you say, well, my presence doesn't matter. Life doesn't matter because it's so short. He's trying to help us see no life is so short. We need to see it, be humble about it and wake up and see that time is so short for us to be who we need to be. Today is the day. It's not tomorrow. We're going to start serving God. It's not two years from now. We're going to get our life put together and then we're going to start serving God. We're not going to go, even Jesus says, you can't even go bury your father. No, follow me now. Let the dead bury their own dead and follow me. Your life is a mist. It's a vapor. You don't even know if today you'll make it home from church on the road. And when we plan pridefully, it's revealing we think We think we have all the time in the world, right? What we think we look like versus what we actually are. We think we can control our future. What we actually have is no control. We think we have all the time in the world, but we actually aren't guaranteed any time in the world. Every breath is a gift from God of sustaining every beat of the heart that you and I have no ability to control this involuntary muscle that's keeping us alive, that's so frail, guarded by our rib cages, have to keep working. And you and I have have no conscious intent and will into keeping it happen, all dependent on the blessed hand of God to keep our body working. This is supposed to humble us, but then it's also supposed to elevate your life to the importance of it being used in the right way because time is short. So don't sit here and let the enemy say, yeah, look, your life's a mist. It's a vapor. You know how you should be motivated by this passage. You're just giving up and saying nothing matters. That's not the spirit talking to you. We need humility. Prideful planning also reveals a person who thinks God is not part of the equation. Look what he says in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say. Didn't he use that word earlier where he says these things ought not be so? And we use our mouth to curse God or bless God, but then curse our brothers, right? These things ought not be so for the person who says they have real faith. Real faith will not live in that, will not chase that. When it comes to planning, someone who says they have faith, they will plan with God in the equation. Instead, you ought to say, if you say you are a believer, and here it is, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. But the person who plans pridefully reveals about themselves someone who thinks that God's not even part of the equation. I don't even have to include God in it. Now let's talk about this for a little bit. Notice here, he says, instead, you ought to say this, right? Come now you who say, this is what we're gonna do. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. He's not saying, instead, you ought to not plan. You ought to not try to make a profit. He's saying, just remember that God is in control of everything. And in humility and reality and in truth, you include God in your plans. And I can't help but to think of Jesus in this moment in the garden as he's praying and he's sweating drops of blood and he's, he's experiencing within him, within his human body, all the, all the anticipation that a human would experience facing a gruesome, excruciating death. He says, Lord, if let this cup pass from me, right? God, is there any other plan? This is what I'm, I'm praying and I'm asking for. Not say, I'm going to find out a way to make this cup pass. But God, if not, 
Either way, your will be done. Even Jesus, the example of planning, right? Making his request, even his wants and his desires, bringing them before the Lord, asking for them, but in his heart, knowing that God is the the full controller of all of those things. And if God decides not to answer this request, or if he has a different plan, then I'm going to submit to that. You see someone with real faith. I don't want you to miss, miss this. Someone with real faith plans all of their plans, even down to the smallest details from today or tomorrow, a person with real faith who understands the sovereignty of God always makes plan B because they understand that God's plan is plan A. When we plan for the things we want and the way we want, we need to keep the attitude, all right, this is plan B. God has plan A. God, your will be done. I know that this is what I want to do at the end of the week if it be your will. Now, you ever heard someone say, if it be the Lord's will, like every time they say something? If they mean it, then that's good. That's right. But sometimes I think we can use, Lord, if it be your will, kind of like how we use in Jesus' name. We say it like saying it has some type of magical uh, effect over our life. No, you need the heart. You need the heart of verse 15, the heart where you know Jesus is in control. You know God has control of your life. You trust him. You give him everything. And then when you make plans, no matter what it is, you're always submitting to his plan. Knowing that you can bring your plan, but you're including him in the equation. The person who plans pridefully, who leaves God out, either they think or they don't think, either way, they think God's not part of the equation, either because they don't believe in him or they think that he's distant, like he's not concerned with my plans. He's just, he's too busy dealing with with this over here. Or somehow we think maybe he's not good, that he's he's actually gonna withhold some type of providence in our life. Either way, prideful planning. We ought to say, church, if the Lord wills. And this is why Christians can have such peace. People who know God can have such peace in the midst of life. When coronavirus comes, when it leaves, when kings go up and kings come down, nations rise and fall, and the whole world is doing everything they can to plan pridefully and control their future, fighting and arguing and willing to tear each other's heads off because all that matters to them is the life that's just a vapor and they're living for it. You got to make that one count. You tell you how you make it count. You lay your life down for Jesus and you let your life be what he wants it to be. I'm telling you that will be the path to the most pleasure, to the most joy, to the most purpose. And the testimony of those throughout history, not only the history of God's word, but throughout even the history here in the country, we have given their lives to Christ and of willing to even die at the edge of the will of the Lord would conclude that this was the best path. Do you believe that what God has for you is best? There are many preachers out there who'll preach a theology that's totally of the devil. Name it and claim it. It's what you want. God's all about you getting your plans, and so you need more faith You get your way. No, God is the one in control and he wants to see a heart that's willing to submit to his will. You come to him, you ask him, you ask in faith, James says. But James also balances that with if it be the Lord's will. You trust God in everything. The person who plans pridefully, 
doesn't include God in the equation. Look at verse 16. Here's another thing that prideful planning reveals. A person who thinks, now this is an interesting one. We, we need to kind of do a little brain uh, exercise. We need to, it's kind of like, you know, we're going to like algebra level two or pre-cal or something. We, gotta, we need to make sure we understand this one. This one, this one kind of hurt my head a little bit as I started to think about it and study it. I wonder like, what is he actually saying here? Verse 16, it reveals a person who thinks that their self-confidence is a good thing. Look what he says here. He says, as it is. So he just said, instead, you ought to say, but as it is, as it remains, as it is right now, as I'm speaking to you through this letter, he says, as it is, you do this. You don't say instead of the Lord. You say, you boast in your arrogance. And he says this, all such boasting is evil. Do any of us, when we're making plans, think, man, I'm being evil here. None of us thinks that. If we thought that, we would actually change. That's why I need the, the word to come around and show us what we're doing is evil. We're constantly going by the, the seat of our pants and our, and our emotions, never at all feeling the weight of evil. Evil is such a strong word. We have an understanding of evil. It's in the horror movies and it's in the serial killers and it's in all of these things. But we don't know the law and the word of God and the standard and what God's required. So we can go about our life just living naturally, thinking we're being great, good people all the while living in evil. And it's something as simple as making plans without including God with it. We never think, oh, that's evil. That's why we need the word to show us like, oh man, that's wrong. That's evil. It's not good. That's pride. It's arrogance. So he says this. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. Boasting in scripture is not a bad thing. It's a neutral thing. It's what you boast in that determines whether or not it's good or evil. For instance, Paul prayed and he asked God to take away a thorn in the flesh that he had. He prayed three times. Prayed and I guarantee his plan, think about it, Paul's plan was this is going to be removed from me. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to pray with 100% faith that God removes it prayed three times. And what did the Lord say to him? No, I'm going to let you keep that because my plan is for you to have that thing that you want to get rid of. I'm going to let you keep it. Why? Because I have a plan for that thing in your life. And so what did Paul do when he found out and he met the plan of God? Did he fight and bicker and argue? No, he realized, wow, my strength and myself is only made perfect when I'm depending on God. So he said, I will then boast all the more in my weakness. If this thing in my body is making me weak and it makes me have to rely on God more, then this thing is being a good thing that's being a catalyst in my life to help me understand faith and dependence. Therefore, if I boast in anything, it's not going to be in my own strength. It's going to be in this weakness that God's given me. I'm going to boast in that. I'm going to rejoice in it. Because God's using it for this awesome plan that he has. It's totally different than what I would want, but it's what he wants. I'm going to give it to him. Thank you, Lord. That's what you see Paul doing. How many of us are dealing with weaknesses in our body right now that may feel like so horrible? We're like, God, why? 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 God, take this from me in my body. Take it from me. It's my prayer. You know I'm asking in faith because I know you can do it. But God, I know you have a plan and it may be different than what I want. So God, let your will be done. The person who plans pridefully in this verse 
They are boasting in what? Their arrogance. And I've translated it into self-confidence because that's how we translate arrogance in our culture. Because we elevate arrogance as a good thing. We value it. We watch the person come on the stage at some type of audition or America's Got Talent and the more self-confidence they have, the more we value that. We just, we well up with tears as we see someone who's so confident in what they can do. All the while the Bible comes along with the mirror and says, no, it's evil. And these people who are planning to go into such and such a year, it was like, yeah, look what I can do. Look what I can do. Boasting in it, somehow thinking that my confidence is going to actually cause change in my life. And so all I need to do is I need to wake up in the mirror, I need to look in the mirror, and I need to tell myself the things that I want to be. Now, we struggle with this because inside of us is the, is the understanding of the culture that we're all a part of. And we're like, man, you're talking about self, you're, you're, really, you're going to sit up there as a preacher and tell people to self-deprecate? That's going to be bad for their self-esteem. Did I, I did not say self-deprecation. Somehow we think the opposite of confidence is self-deprecation. No, there's something outside of both of those things called humility, living within reality, when we understand the limits of our strength, the limits of our ability to control the future, the limits of our abilities. And we live in the reality of that, in humility. And when I start thinking about the reality of how weak I am, how fragile I am, how in need I am to even stay alive, the food that I constantly need when I have, I have m- more than I could ever want, how my body will die if I don't get enough water within three to four days, how, how I need a seat belt and how, how, how my body is so fragile to just being on the road constantly crossing path, potential death all the time. You know what it should do is it should not make me say, man, look what I can do. As long as I crack my knuckles, wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, get things ready, go out ready to take this day on, right? Because we, we value it. We want people to do that. The world wants us to do that. It wants us to feel uh, uh, an intimacy to being self-confident as if it's going to be some means of helping us change the future. And James is saying, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, your self-confidence. And he says this, here's the mirror. Guess what? That's evil. It's not valuable. It's not good. Instead, we should be reminded of how we're not promised tomorrow, how much we need God and live in that. Verse 17, this one's even more interesting. Prideful planning reveals a person who will neglect doing the right thing. We plan pridefully without God. We don't include God in the equation. When we plan, we'll end up neglect, neglecting and rejecting doing the right thing when it happens in our life. Verse 17 says this. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You guys ever heard this verse before? This is a pretty famous verse that I've always heard used isolated. That verse is always used to help us understand that There are sins of commission, things we actually do, and then there are sins of omission, things that we know we should do and we don't. That's absolutely true, and that's exactly what this verse is saying. But verse 17 is is the completed thought of what he's just said, and very rarely do I ever hear anyone use it in the context of planning. And so when you read verse 17, your mind goes, what does this have to do with the rest? He says, so... As if like, okay, because I've said all of this, now I'm going to tell you this. So it must be connected. So 
He's talked all about planning for tomorrow. Say if the Lord, so for whoever knows the right thing to do and does not do it for him in a sin. It's like, what? What's the thought process here, James? I want to help us understand it. Think about this. If you're so glued to your plans, whether driving home, whatever, you've already got everything figured out what you want to do and you've never once considered what might God have for me or God, this is what I'll do in your plan. When God comes and he interrupts your day with his plan, you're going to neglect it. You hear that? If we plan pridefully, God's going to want to interrupt your day constantly with his plan filled with good things, using you as light in the world and you're going to neglect it if you neglect to include God in your plan. So the person who walks around making their plans, God's not part of it. When they come across the person on the side of the road who's broke down, but they're like, Hey, I'm planning to go to the store. Then I got to get home. And then this, this was my plan. Like, I don't have time for that. Right. You feel it. Like, I know I should stop. I should ask. I should help. But boom, I don't. Why? My thing is why Let's work backwards. Why, though, do we neglect doing the things that God brings in our life that, like, deep down hit in our soul, and it's like God saying, do that, do that, and we go, no, no. I think one of the main reasons is because we have been planning pridefully the whole time. Plan A has been what we want. We haven't been looking at what we want as plan B. And when you flip it around and you live every single day, you wake up like, God, my day is yours. My day is yours. Do with it what you will. Here's the things that I'm planning for, but God, I know, I know you have the ultimate plan for my life and I am ready and I am prepared to serve you when you interrupt. What's going to be the difference between someone who doesn't include God versus does? I guarantee you when they come across that person on the road, they've already planned to be interrupted by God and they see it like, there it is. I want to be obedient to it. I know that's the right thing to do. So I'm going to stop and I'm going to help. One of many examples. So what about you? What are the things in your life? You're like, man, I just know there's this good thing I'm neglecting to do. If you were to analyze your heart, could it be? Could it be because it's interrupting your plans and you've been planning pridefully the whole time and you're not giving your future to God and putting it in his hands and surrendering to him? I mean, think about what Jesus would have done if you were planning that way, you know, in the garden, crying, feeling the anguish of what was coming to him. And he felt that desire for it to be another way. And all he was doing was just thinking about what he wanted. He would have ran off from the garden and tried to find another way. No, but he was obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Man, don't believe the lie that people tell you. Like, man, if you follow Jesus, life's going to be rosy. He's not going to ask you to do anything hard. Listen, you come to Jesus, we're all going to die one day. I don't know about you, but I want my dying and my death to mean something. And when, when we, we act like God asking us to lay our life down to him is so cruel. But there's another God of the world who wants your life. And we so easily give that life to him. And he says, hey, do what you want. Live life the way you want to live plan things the way you deserve this. We go about living our life in evil, surrendered to the God of this world, laying our lives down for him and our lives are going to pass away one day because it's just a vapor. 
And at the end of it all, we'll look back and we'll say, man, I followed a plan that did nothing for the world and ultimately nothing for me. But Jesus shows up and he shows us a better way. He shows us the purpose. He shows us the reward of following Jesus, the glory that awaits God himself and the inheritance that awaits all those who will lay their life down for the one who laid his life down for you. When it comes to our life, where are we at? Where's pride sunk deep? Who is it in our life that's getting in the way of our plans? Who is keeping things from going the way that we want them to go? Is it your spouse? At least you think it's your spouse. Is it your kids? Is it your work? Is it the little interruptions through the day? Is it your health? What is it that causes you to want to fight and quarrel, right? Just argue and resist. What does James say? That's your selfish passions at war within you, right? And you slander and you say whatever you need to about someone, about whoever it may be, even the people closest to you, you will raise your voice and you'll show anything but the fruits of the spirit to try to get your way all because you're deceived thinking that what you want is good, right? What you think is going on, what's actually going on is you're being a very prideful person and your plans aren't going the way you want them to go and no life is manifesting the interruptions that are coming in from God. And he's saying, I want to use you in life in this way, but I need a humble person. I resist the proud, but I give grace to the humble. If you struggle with this, which we all do, let us take our eyes to the place where Jesus surrendered to the plan of God that affected the whole world for all of eternity and has reached us here on a different continent with the gospel message It says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the plan of God reaching you, saying if you humble yourself and if you see the need for Jesus in your life and you believe in him in faith, not on your own works, but on the ability of God, you believe in my son that is pleasing to me and I will save your soul and I will give your life purpose till the day you die. And every single moment you think is insignificant will be a powerful reverberation and ripple into the effects of eternity in the lives of people you don't even see and know and comprehend. And one day when your eyes darken from this life and you open your eyes to the white of heaven and you see your savior face to face and you know him like he fully knows you now. You're going to see the effect of eternity that you had from the faithfulness of surrendering to the plan of God here in this life now. And it is going to be beyond beyond anything you could imagine. And it will be worth it. Worth it, church. And we get to do this together. God is good. I hope you see that. And I hope you leave here today surrendering your plans to him believing that what he has for you is best. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your spirit that invades our heart and lives. God, every single one of us, every single one of us, we without ignorantly planning, just making our plans all the time, but help us to see where we need to include you every single day. Surrender to your plan. Believe that your plan's best. Keep our eyes on the gospel. God, help us in this. 
work and move. And if there's someone here or someone watching that does not have the forgiveness and the salvation that comes through your plan of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection, I pray that they'd see it, the spirit would move, you'd draw them, and they would call upon you for salvation and be saved and become part of the family. God, this is what you do. And I ask that you do that. I pray it all in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.